0: Be advised, the following episode contains content that may not be appropriate
1: for all audiences. And the airplane then started coming apart, <clears throat> and I don't remember initiating the in- ejection, but I, I had to have done so, and I was ejected out of the airplane as it's falling apart.
0: This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. Here in the quiet New England town of Amherst, New Hampshire, lives a former POW who was held captive in Vietnam one year longer than the late U.S. Senator John McCain. This man is humble and has lived here for decades, yet most people aren't even aware of his story. In fact, Dave Salvis, my daughter's cross-country and track coach, reached out to share a story with me while I was promoting the episode in the days leading up to its publication. Years ago, Dave said he met Captain Buchanan at a house party. We were playing Trivial Pursuit, Dave said. I couldn't believe he didn't know some of the answers. It was the husbands against the wives. I can't remember the question, but the answer was the movie... The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. I figured we would win the game. The husband's lost. And I was like, what the hell? His wife, who had set up the game, knew he wouldn't know the answer. She had set both him and me up for failure. His wife finally told me he was a POW. The Graduate came out during his captivity. I felt like a jerk. For some of us, this year is starting out even darker than last year ended, myself included. I imagine POWs have waded through some of the same isolating challenges that a pandemic generates. I hope this history lesson will not only educate you, but also will inspire you. One note, this interview was recorded in Captain Buchanan's living room. You'll hear the occasional chime of a clock, but don't try to keep time by it. The interview is lightly edited, so the chiming each half hour won't match up. Captain, you and I have a couple of things in common. We both live here in the same New Hampshire town, and we both spent time at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas. I went through basic training there in 1993 and eventually became a meteorologist. You earned your commission as a second lieutenant there in 1964 and went on to become a fighter pilot. By 1966, you're a 25-year-old first lieutenant stationed at Ubon Royal Thai Air Force Base. You're an F-4 Phantom fighter pilot with the 555th Tactical Fighter Squadron. What's going on in your mind as you arrive in theater?
1: I had never been to Thailand before. I thought it was very different than the environment I'd ever experienced in the United States. Very interesting the ties were very friendly, nice people. I, I was very impressed by them. It was uh, very enjoyable to be in a place so much different from what I had experienced in my past life.
0: What's it like to fly the F-4 and what are its capabilities?
1: I was in the back seat of a two-seat airplane. The front guy was called, he was the aircraft commander, and uh, the one in the back was a pilot systems operator, and they call him Gibbs. Guy in the back seat. That's you. So, yeah, it's like a co-pilot. You operated a bunch of equipment more than anything. And the front guy uh, did primarily most of the flying. However, both people could do the flying of the airplane.
0: What are its specific capabilities? Max speed?
1: Well, it was developed, I think, in the late 50s, about 1958. when it first became operational in the Navy. It could go twice the speed of sound. Could get up above 50,000 feet. We did that for a few minutes, but you're supposed to have a pressure suit, I think, above 50,000. It's very, very fast. It could climb very well, but it did not turn very well. It's a rather large airplane, it used a lot of fuel.
0: Your 17th mission is the one that resulted in your capture, but let's start with missions 1 to 16. What types of missions were
1: those? Do you have any interesting stories? They were all in Vietnam, usually in the southern part of North Vietnam, and typically they were targets that were not worth doing anything with. They were trying to cut the truck traffic down the Ho Chi Minh Trail into South Vietnam. So typically the target would be some small bridge and the planes would go there. If they were lucky and were able to hit this small bridge, it would be rebuilt that night night out of bamboo. And all the time that we were over Vietnam, they would be shooting at us with all kinds of flak and anti-aircraft devices. However, we could not always fight back because you can't hit villages, you can't hit various things. So it was like having your hands tied behind you to go to a target that's hardly worth even bothering with and all the while being shot at. So it was a little frustrating. The rules of engagement were rather strange. They're stricter today, though, right? Probably. Rules of engagement are usually set by politicians, not by the military. So if the objective is to win, then I, have, I think you have to have the military make those decisions. And I don't think the objective was to win in Vietnam. It was to negotiate a settlement, but it didn't work out so well.
0: Major John Robertson had only been at Ubon for a month when you and he were tasked with a recon mission. When he made that initial request to serve in Vietnam, I read that he wrote a 28-page letter. When his request was granted, he did cartwheels and backflips around the family pool. What do you remember about him?
1: I remember he was married with four small children, and he was... Probably my impression was he was on a fast track to very high rank. He was very talented and ambitious and a very good leader, very easy to get along with, nice guy all the way around. He was a flight leader, being a, the highest rank, a major, and he would let lower rank lead the flights in order to get experience, he wasn't always looking out for himself. He seemed to be very generous in his uh, interest in helping others become leaders also. It's too bad the way it ended up because he was, was a, a great loss for our humanity.
0: So the recon mission takes place around 3.30 in the afternoon on September 16th. 1966, this is your 17th mission. Major Robertson, the pilot, you're the WSO, the weapons system operator in the back. You're one of four jets on that mission. Your call sign, Moonglow 3. Walk me through that day.
1: Early in the day, you have a intelligence briefing where they describe the targets, how you're going to get there, the total operation of all the activity in North Vietnam. And I remember they said, this is going to be the highest defended area ever in history. (laughs) You're going to be near the city of Hanoi, which was more heavily defended than any of the cities of Europe in World War II. And they said also, this area is too dangerous for any rescue. So if you're shot down in this area, good luck. Because there's nothing we can do so we had a flight of four and we would have a load of bombs on the F-4 take off with a partial fuel load because of the heavy ordnance load that we had fly across Laos across the demilitarized zone of North Vietnam or between North and South Vietnam out over the South China Sea Then refuel, air refuel, so that there's enough uh, fuel left to complete the mission. And during that flight, Major Robertson had given lead to another officer so that they could gain experience. And uh, we were number three in that flight. The number four airplane had trouble mechanical with the refueling. They could not get enough fuel that would be adequate to complete the mission. So they had to leave and go land in uh, South Vietnam somewhere for uh, uh, maintenance. So the flight of three then has an option. You can scrap the whole mission with three airplanes, or you can continue. It's up to... The flight to decide that. So it was decided to complete the mission, and as uh, we leave the South China Sea near the city of Haiphong, uh, used to be there was a lot of flak, and you see bullets coming up, kind of like the Fourth of July, the finality, the f- the final part of a Fourth of July fireworks display, and eventually as we're getting close to the Red River Delta around Hanoi. Uh, one of the people in the flight said that we have MiGs at 6 o'clock low. The F-4 has a disadvantage of a very large tail which you cannot see down below and behind very well. You can see up but not down. And as the flight Saw the MiGs. They dropped the ordnance. Uh, they're inactive that way. They aren't armed when you drop them like that. So that people what was dropped? Uh, bombs. You know, they were five hundred or thousand pound bombs. I don't remember which. But they're when they're dropped like that, they're dropped unarmed so that they don't hurt anything on the ground.
0: Where were you headed? I understand it was a railroad and a bridge.
1: Yeah, it was somewhere on the Red River in the area of of Hanoi. It wasn't right in the city. I don't recall exactly which bridge or anything.
0: Dapkow
1: Railroad, I'd read. So I observed the MiGs because of the zigzag motion of the airplanes in this situation. You get a glimpse of them. And I don't remember how many minutes it took, but... The typical way for an F-4 to, in aerial combat is to accelerate away and climb because it does not turn very well. But the uh, flight began to turn in a big circle which allows uh, the MiGs to cut off the inside of the turn and join up. It's, it's not a good maneuver for the F-4. The MiGs have a better turn rate. Yes, it was a a fairly old airplane, a MiG-17, which is more like Korean War era, but it's very maneuverable, and it has 37-millimeter cannon and uh, internal machine guns, which the F-4 has no guns at this point. They had
0: 23-millimeter cannons
1: also. Ah. We have only rockets, and the rockets do not arm when you're pulling a lot of, you can't launch a rocket if you have very heavy G-forces. Plus, they don't arm until they're a safe distance away from the airplane. So, the f force kind of defenseless in this situation. And the uh, MiGs kept cutting off the turn, and after about 180 degrees, I observed that the lead American airplane had a MiG behind it. Then there was American airplane behind that. And then a MiG. And then we were number three American. And they had two MiGs behind us. And they were coming uh, right into a very good position to fire. And I'm the one that's reporting to... Major Robertson, and I said, "He's pulling into a perfect firing position." And I hardly finished the words when the tracers went right over the canopy of the airplane, just just missed it. And then I said, "Well, he's correcting his error. The next one should get us." And I was right. <laughs> And the airplane then started coming apart, <clears throat> and I don't remember initiating the inj- ejection, but it, I I had to have done so, and I was ejected out of the airplane as it's falling apart. What does that mean back then? You push a button? There were two methods on the F-4. There was uh, something above your head, like a curtain you pull down, and there was also a... Uh, a ring between your legs, by your knees, that if you pull up on that, either one of those will uh, blast you out of the airplane with cannon shells. It's a Martin Baker uh, ejection seat. And it's um, it was very good for saving your life. It was not good for your back. Because <laughs> it was the about the max that the human back could stand. But it saves your life, so... It's a pretty good way of doing things.
0: I read that the North Vietnamese doubted that their slower MiGs could catch up with your F-4s. But then your flight drops its ordnance, like you said, and began a climbing turn. And now you're within three to 500 feet of the enemy. The MiGs cut off your flight as it turns. The enemy fighter pilot said he saw a wheel come out from beneath your F-4's wing and sail past his canopy, like you just described. And he said he only saw one parachute that day, yours. Yes, he was correct. So when you were getting fired upon, what is it, those orange glowing golf ball size
1: cannon fire? Is that what it looked like? That was the first that they fired something at, at our airplane was the tracer bullets going over the canopy. What took place next, I don't know, because the next thing is the, the airplane is falling apart. Everything, is, the G-forces are so great that everything is dark. You, know, you lose vision and uh, when you have a lot of G-forces. So I don't know what was used for the uh, actual shoot-down.
0: Why was that turn made?
1: Uh, I think it was an error. And uh, it they would have never actually have caught up with us had it been a straight climbing acceleration. You know, it's uh, quarterbacking uh, <laughs> after the event, you know, uh, an error on whose part? I suppose that flight lead uh, should have climbed and accelerated out, but I am not going to second-guess him. I, I don't know. It would have been better that other things happened, but it's, uh, I think that's like uh, what, Mo- Monday morning quarterbacking, so I'm not going to criticize anyone. Do you black out as you fall from your jet? No, uh, but the G-forces um, were sufficient that the vision was impaired. You couldn't see anything for a short time till the G-forces end. I am uh, feeling wind and ex- all kinds of things, and I'm fairly aware of what's going on, and uh, then I hear a little pop and having had some parachuting experience, I knew that I had just had a successful parachute opening, which that's good right there so far. <laughs> How did that feel? Well, it was comforting to know that I had a parachute open, but it was also kind of bad because I knew where the parachute was located, right over in North Vietnam, <laughs> so it uh, kind of mixed feelings, I guess. Why, again, was
0: daylight chosen for that recon mission?
1: It was to bomb a bridge. Those type bombs are so inaccurate in something like an F-4 that it's difficult to even to hit a target in daylight in perfect conditions. When you have people firing at you, or if the visibility is bad, it's... It's uh, very difficult to accomplish that. Technology now has changed things a lot, but in those days, it was... They were dome bombs, they call them. And it's, it's difficult to concentrate when there are bullets all around you and the next one could be right through your head and you're trying to hit a target on the ground. Very challenging. What is that like in your body? Uh, in my case, I think it was mostly scarce. <laughs> being, being afraid because <laughs> you don't know, everything's fine, but the next second some bullet could go right through your head or your plane could blow up and it goes on and on because they're everywhere you look. there's uh, flack and bullets going by and all kinds of things. So
0: yeah. What's it like falling through the sky to earth?
1: Well, I'd actually done a little bit of that in college, so that part was okay. I'd had a lot of training on it, and I just started going through all the training. You know, check the canopy of the parachute. I noticed there was a couple panels had some damage. The parachute on an F-4 is a little small, so you come down kind of fast. So I lost, you know, 10% of the canopy. So okay, I'm going to hit a little harder. Uh, s- drop the survival kit you always have so that you take the pressure off your legs when you hit and plan an escape route while you're way up high and you have a good view of the whole place. I was going to land in some small, some, a hilly area outside the ridder, out of the Delta area of Hanoi and it seemed to go to the north up towards China, that was the only wooded area that I thought maybe that's the best option. Other places where it there's just no camouflage there's nothing, no hope so that's that was my plan as I'm coming down. What's in your flight suit? Oh, we have survival radios that we can communicate with other airplanes. We carry a combat. I think it's a Smith & Weston 38 revolver. We have knives, uh, all kinds of things, and a survival kit that was part of the ejection seat. So we are well equipped, but I didn't get to use those. Describe the
0: moment when you hit land.
1: Well, as I'm coming down, I saw someone in a uniform with a rifle off to my right, And he was running, but I knew he wasn't going to get to me for quite a while. He had too great a distance. But as I get closer to the ground, I see all kinds of men with things like uh, maybe pitchforks and agricultural tools that would be weapons. And there were a lot of them, and they were right where I'm going to land. And... uh, so I hit the ground and they're on me within seconds. Were you hurt? My back was not too good because of this high G force Martin Baker uh, ejection seat. But I didn't have any broken bones or I by comparison to most most guys, I was in pretty good shape, yeah. So the man who actually captures you is Vietnamese
0: farmer Lee Kong Su. What happens next?
1: Well, to me, all I remember is a very large group. But I know later that he was awarded a certificate from the government as having been the primary person to have captured me. So uh, we went to his house with this big mob of people, big, large group. And we, we went into his house And they were actually not very hostile. They were just sort of curious. And it attracted a lot of people. So outside the house, more and more people were arriving by the minute. And people in the house, they they tried to speak French to me. And I I know two words of French. That didn't work out so well. (laughs) And so... It was just, we're waiting around for something. I, I don't know what we're waiting for. But eventually, there is a uniformed person arrive, Look like uh, the Vietnamese army. He hardly comes in. He just stands on a soapbox and begins addressing the crowd. And he starts <clears throat> to work them up to get them all excited until it's like chanting and very, they become hostile, little by little, they become more and more hostile. And they keep keep me there uh, for quite a few hours until twilight. They don 't want to travel when there's uh, a possibility of rescue, so they wait until it's getting dark, and then uh, I'm taken to another village. And there's a couple of soldiers assigned to take me to Hanoi. And every village in which we went through, the people were already, they had people uh, getting them all excited. Uniformed uh, military people would be giving speeches and getting the the people very excited. They were so hostile, uh, they probably killed a lot of POWs in the past, but the two soldiers that were with me as we go through the village, they would get hit uh, maybe <laughs> as much as I was. They, they, they were very nice that they were on each side of me because they, um, I guess, a form of protection because they got hit more than I did. And we went through several villages like this, and then eventually there was a car, and they put me in the car and drove me to Hanoi and wallow prison
0: Wallow Prison is the infamous Hanoi Hilton correct
1: yes i th- I think Hanoi Hilton is a generic term used by some people, and it it means wallow prison to others so it is so. that one. I think so. I think it was a French prison probably built in the 1880s. For boating place, very big high walls around it and uh, barbed wire and you know electric insulators on the barbed wire. Mm-hmm. Before we get into
0: more of your captivity, let's back up to Major Robertson. He obviously wasn't captured. What do you think happened to him that day?
1: I didn't know immediately. I was uncertain what happened. But one of the interrogation techniques, when you have two people from an airplane, you interrogate one person, get information, then you compare it to what the other person was telling you. And I maybe did not give them accurate information. Everything was not correct, and they did not refute it, and that started me worrying right away. Why aren't they coming back and saying, what are you telling me? They never came back, and they say, ooh, did he fly home? <laughs> did he evade, or did something happen? I didn't know at the time. I did not know. But in hindsight, what's your best understanding
0: of what happened to him?
1: Oh, well, I went back to Vietnam, and it was with the a Japanese television that wanted to do... Um, they wanted to find if if the, any American POWs were left behind after the war, and... Major Robertson was one of the unknowns that it was possible. So the Japanese company had done a lot of research. When I went back with them, we found the village where the airplane hit. Also saw parts of the airplane which they had stored. Uh, I found Le Su, who was credited with capturing me. So they helped, and we visited all these places. And the people in the village I thought was fairly interesting, just a little little village where the airplane hit. And I spoke with a boy whose house is exactly where the airplane hit. He said it was a small house, and he, only he and his sister were home. They were teenagers, and when, all, when they heard all the activity in the air above them, they left the area and jumped into a, like a foxhole. It was like a, a bomb shelter. And the airplane came down and hit exactly on their house. The girl was pretty much unharmed, but the boy said, I was knocked unconscious from the concussion of the airplane. And he said, and like a minute later, I woke up, and he says, I've been fine ever since. And he was just thought it was the funniest thing. <laughs> Something, wasn't it? But, but they also reported uh, all the debris and evidence that somebody had not gotten out of the airplane. So, so. he went down with the jet, I talked to other people who had witnessed that day, and they told me that I barely got out of the airplane before it crashed. I thought that I had a lot more time, but they said, no, you really didn't have much time. The plane was coming straight down, and it was very fast.
0: So are we to believe that he went down with the jet?
1: When you crash a plane like an F-4 at high speed. When you're in pilot training, they, they give you footprints more than handprints. And the, re- the reason is often they only find like boots that have the feet. My information that from what the, the people I had interviewed on the ground... Only one person was able to get out of the airplane, and Major Robertson must have crashed into into the airplane. There was a very scientific uh, excavation of the area by uh, the United States later, and they did find things, uh, small artifacts that would indicate that there are human remains and maybe dog tags, things that were as good as humans can identify in such a situation. I personally have no doubt he did uh, remain in the airplane until it crashed.
0: Captain, you're holding an old People magazine from 1991. What story are you referencing there?
1: It was a report from... Somewhere I don't recall, which were some photos that were reported to be American POWs who were never returned after the Vietnam War. They were in Russia or somewhere like that. And of, there were three pictures. Now, two of those people had been in single-seat airplanes. One of those photos was... Uh, Supposedly, John Robertson. And I was the only human that had any contact with any of those three pictures. And that made the Japanese television company think it would be a good story if we can go back to Vietnam and search for this guy and find out what happened and see if this is valid or not. So they proposed that I go back with them. So they had everything set up, and it was a very interesting trip.
0: I heard you were one of the first, if not the first, POW to return back to Vietnam.
1: I'm not sure. A lot of us have been back. Uh, I don't know whether I was one of the first or or not. I, I think I was quite early because the U.S. government was saying, if you go back, there's nothing we can do to help you. We have no good relations with the government of Vietnam, so be very careful. But when you saw Lee Kong soo
0: on that trip, he wanted you to stay the night at his place.
1: Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sounds like uh, what uh.
0: happened to you back during the war.
1: Well, I was... The start of another bad story. uh, First of all, before I went, I did a little research from other soldiers in the U.S. Army who had been back. And they said, when you go back, you're going to be very surprised. They're going to like you a lot. And you're going to have a really good rapport with the people who were in the Army On the other side, they reported that when they went back, that they would, at night, they would all be sitting around drinking beer. They would have Vietnamese on one side, Americans on the other. They couldn't communicate, but they had maps and dates and calendars. And they would find that they were in the same battle on opposite sides. And they said, wow, we really get along with them better than a lot of other people, <laughs> which surprised them. And I, I found that the trip was full of irony from beginning to end. It was just amazing. In what ways? Well, first of all, the, the person that contacted me, who's uh, Japanese, he said, hi, I'm Butch which I thought was strange for a Japanese. But he, he said, uh, I will take you back. You come to Los Angeles. And then we will fly to Bangkok. And then we go Bangkok to Hanoi. So I flew out there and I met Butch. And we got on an airplane with a couple of other Japanese. So... It's very long flight. I forget how many hours to Bangkok. But while I'm sitting there, I, I say, Hey, Butch, uh, where'd you grow up? And he, he said, "Um, Hiroshima. I said, Oh, boy, that's great. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Some then, more bad memories. And then one of the other uh, Japanese comes over, and he said, Oh, yeah, I, I heard your story. He said, My grandfather bombed Pearl Harbor. No, And he said... Yes, he flew a, a lot in the Pacific, and he was shot down by the Americans and captured and was a prisoner of war wow. in Second World War. And so we arrive in Hanoi, and I had already found from other Americans that had been to Hanoi that if you go to the Australian embassy on a Friday evening, they have an international party. They like all foreigners to come. So we happened to arrive late Friday afternoon. So Butch and I go over to the embassy and knock on the door. I should first describe how Butch dresses. He was wearing a World War II American bomber jacket with a giant American flag on the back. And he's Japanese. He loves America, though. <laughs> but he said, I, I'm Japanese, but when I was a kid, I watched too many American movies. He said, in my brain, he says, I'm an American, but I'm Japanese. So he says, in Japan, everybody acts like, hey, you act like an American. And when I live in Los Angeles, everybody says, oh, you're Japanese. He said, I don't fit in anywhere. So we go into the Australian embassy, they welcome us in, and after a little while, some Australian comes over and confronts me and says, you Americans, you should never have been in Vietnam, you know, you just caused trouble and all that. And I said, yeah, I, I can understand your point of view and all that, which was okay with me, but Butch didn't like that. Butch wanted to take the guy out and fight. So it was, I was running into the craziest ideas all the time. There's, it was, so it's, okay, calm down, calm down. It's okay, I'm not bothered by this. It's okay. No, he's going to fight. I don't, you're Japanese. It's okay. Oh, man. Also, I forgot to mention, we had a, An employee of the Japanese company was a a Vietnamese woman. And I think she was also kind of a watcher. I think she was a representative of the Communist Party also. So we step into the Australian embassy, and they have a gigantic screen on the wall that's playing um, MTV or music. Yes. And she drops everything and sits down in front of that, and that's the last we see of her for the evening. She's totally involved in watching that TV.
0: (laughs) Well, it was fascinating as a teenager watching that here. She was
1: so excited about that.
0: (laughs) Do you want to go back to Vietnam again?
1: Well, I've already promised uh, Le Kwon Su and his family that... I would go back. It. I would have probably gone back this year, or actually last year, twenty twenty, but the uh, virus kind of changed everything on that. And unfortunately, Le Su, Last I spoke with him, he was. He's older than I am, and he said, "I am getting pretty old, and I am going downhill. You better hurry, or we won't get together." You're
0: seventy nine. Yes.
1: Couple months
0: until you're eighty. April. Mm-hmm. Do you have survivor's
1: guilt, or did you? Mm, no, I don't think so. I guess that I maybe people should have it, but no, I didn't. I don't know. It. I know that's a problem people have, but I never. I I often wondered why would this guy who's so talented with four little kids die and I was single, you know, but, you know, uh, life is not fair.
0: A jet fighter race for the Vietnam People's Air Force, the North Vietnamese Air Force, shot down your plane. Colonel... Nguyen Van Bai. He died in 2019 in Ho Chi Minh City, a
1: national hero. Did you know much of anything about him? Uh, I did know that uh, some of the Vietnamese uh, fighter pilots were coming to San Diego. I, I forget which year. It either last year or year before. I think it was the year before. And I flew out there to meet some of them. And I did meet him. We, we met each other. I have photos of us together. And we discussed various things. First of all, uh, when he was presented as the one who shot me down, uh, I, was, I had to give him a little test, you know, what day, what time of day, where is it located, that kind of thing. And after the first couple of questions, I was, hmm, I'm not so sure about this. And then we had some details, and I said, yep, you're the guy.
0: (laughs) What was it that made you realize it was him?
1: When when he gave more specific details uh, about things, you know, the position of the airplanes and where it's all located, time of day, he had a lot of details. And I pretty convinced he's the guy
0: yeah did I'm you pretty... feel comfortable did he feel comfortable that day
1: oh yeah i think we were both fine he was um he's like the reputation uh, fighter pilots have all over the world a little arrogant and uh, condescending and feel superior to everybody i guess <laughs> that's one of the characteristics and he was classic pilot you know he's the he's the guy and he was uh just saying how much better trained he, he had trained in Russia for many more years than the American pilots had, and he was uh, very proud of his record, what he had done. And somewhat on an aside, he said, what happened to the other other person I, I said uh, he was killed, and he had a family, four little kids and all, and he said, well, I'm sorry that happened but he said, you understand the situation, right? I said, sure, I understand. It's... So we were okay with that. I read that he shot
0: down seven American fighter jets in his career, and he often dined with Ho Chi Minh. He retired to his hometown, and he lived as a farmer after they grounded him to preserve his status as a war hero. And legend is that he went from riding a bicycle straight to learning to fly an airplane and only learned to drive a car later in life.
1: Yes, he said that he had uh, been selected to go to Russia and he trained with the Russians for many years that he was a very experienced pilot so uh, he had a lot of details about how they performed what all they did there and and how the uh how the air Force in Vietnam worked
0: so back to when you're in captivity you're Air Force SEER training, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape, was very similar to what you experienced in your initial interrogation. Could you explain how that was similar and what information did they try to gather from you?
1: I was very impressed by the training I had had because when I first was taken into a room... It was almost identical to my memory of what I had experienced in training. In training, they had a very gray drab room with a table, a very plain wooden table with a blue cloth draped over it. They have a small stool for the prisoner. That makes you down low to feel insecure and low and uncomfortable. And then the interrogator sits in a chair behind the table, and in training, they had a picture of linen, linen, uh, behind. And in Vietnam, when I walked in, it was almost the identical room, except the photo behind the interrogator was of Ho Chi Minh. And if I could have laughed if it wasn't for the bad situation I was in. But it immediately hit me like, oh, I know what's coming. Now how can I do the best? I know what's coming. Was that
0: the first step when you got to the Hanoi Hilton, that room?
1: No, the first is uh, a little more crude and a lot more physical. Very, uh, uh, you know, torture Trying to, trying to get immediate information. What they want initially is they're hoping to predict what the targets would be, like the next day or two, and we never, ever know that. The day of a flight, we're given a sealed envelope that says top secret. We tear it open, and that's how we find our targets. So we don't even have that information, but they're always hoping that maybe somehow you have it. So... That's, that's what they're interested in. Things like that, that they can use for a defense against this, this bombing. But we really don't even have that information. Initially, how exactly were you tortured? Well, it, it varied with individuals. In my case, because I didn't have any broken bones or anything, they used uh, uh, ropes. Our term is the ropes, and so your legs are tied together, and then your wrists are put into a manacle-type thing, which is a very thick steel, which makes your elbows point outward. And this kind of, they use a wrench to... It goes right into your uh, wrists. It uh, doesn't feel good. And then they put ropes around your elbows and they pull them toward each other and what the effect is painful and some people have like their shoulder socket pops out the bone pops out of the socket mine did not I I got through that pretty well it also cuts off the blood to your arms and uh, that's pretty hard to describe but it's uh, it's uh, very painful
0: no lasting physical injuries, though,
1: uh, for you. I I used to have some little lines, like little scars, but I think they have they have gone away. Um, no, I don't think I can find anything where that was done. the The people that had broken bones; they would just twist the bones and you know twist the arms, things like that. There are various things, but the ropes were usually considered the most, the ultimate. So uh, they had a lot of other things for later, a lot lot less severe than the ropes. The ropes are very severe. Um, they like to say, you'll want to die, but we won't let you. But <laughs> did you feel that way in the moment? Uh, you just want the pain to quit. You can, you can only go like, okay, I can't last... A minute, but I can I can count to ten. I can make it ten, and then if you get to ten, maybe you can get to another ten. Was that the extent of your
0: physical torture while you were in captivity?
1: Oh, uh, oh no, that there's whenever you were breaking uh, their rules or doing something, or they wanted propaganda, they had many other ways of doing things. When you want torture like that you have to be able to cause pain and to stop pain you can't just cause pain like it's ineffective so you they had you know sleep deprivation stress things beatings yeah there's a whole whole list yeah and that was all done to you the sleep deprivation oh yeah the beatings yeah I I, see I'm in one of the older groups I mean the earlier groups and there was only like a hundred or so of us. And um yeah, we we had that. It wasn't everyday constant, but yeah, you know, an adequate amount for me. I was I thought it was adequate for me. I didn't want any more. The ropes, was that the worst that you remember? Oh the ropes are the worst. Oh yeah. Yeah. The others are uh pretty mild by comparison, you know. I read about Figure-eight-shaped piece of
0: steel that resembles handcuffs. Oh, that's part
1: of the ropes, yeah. Oh, that's mm-hmm. part of the that's ropes. That's the part that goes on your wrist. Yeah. And they have a bolt that goes through the center, and they use a wrench to bring it down. It's, uh, to bring, uh, it's like slicing the figure-eight in half. I also this. read
0: they would tie hands behind a prisoner's back and then suspend the wrists from the ceiling, But they never did that to you.
1: No, I I I do know of people who uh, had that, but no, I didn't uh, have that. Mine was just just ropes. How long were you at the
0: first prison camp, the Hanoi Hilton? The first time.
1: Okay, I refer to it as uh, Wallow Prison, you know, for and um, then I was taken to the zoo, uh, probably within twenty four hours. What's the zoo? The zoo was apparently an old French film studio. It had a pool in the center, and it had been converted into a prison, and the pool was full of stagnant water.
0: What's the room like, or what's the building like when you walk into the Hanoi Hilton? Can you describe it like as if you and I are walking through it?
1: Well, you go through a, a big door. It's like going into a castle. They have this big oval or arch-shaped entrance. Drive inside, then they close the doors, and you're in a courtyard. And they have a, uh, the, the bumpy room, they call it. It had plaster in a very irregular shape. That's uh, sound deadening, we think, probably. And that was their area of torture that was popular.
0: So Wallow was the first prison. There were six other camps in total that you were held in, correct?
1: Correct. Uh huh. What did you eat in captivity? Uh, typically, a meal most, most of the years would be a plate of rice, and then there would be a bowl of a cooked vegetable in water. It's sort of like a thin soup. And then there would be maybe two tablespoons of that same vegetable on a plate. And it would be something like cabbage or kohlrabi or pumpkin. And you may have that. I've had maybe pumpkin for 45 days straight, something like that. <laughs> Can That's you eat the-
0: those foods today?
1: Oh, yeah. No, no problem. Oh, I love rice. And Sometimes when you were in a camp in Hanoi, there was French bread. It would be, let's call it, more than a day old bread. It would be uh, a little older, but instead of rice, you would have French bread because it's a former French colony. They still have a lot of things about France.
0: Were you starved for periods? Did you
1: lose a lot of weight? Uh, Yes, a lot of weight loss. And the main topic of conversation for years is food, (laughs) eating. (laughs) Yeah, food is the big thing. And it's like Maslow's Pyramid of Priorities. Right. Everything was at the bottom. You know, I get through today, food. You don't worry about all those other self-esteem and things. You're worried about survival, yeah.
0: Right, you're not going to get (laughs) to (laughs) self-actualization.
1: Yeah, that's somewhere down the road on your list. (laughs) What's a typical day in captivity like? Well, I'll tell you, a really good day. Here's a good day, just about daylight. You hear somebody banging on a tire rim of a car. They bang on it with a hammer or a piece of metal. And it's very loud and it goes on and on and on because you're in an army camp. And this is how they wake up all the soldiers and all the prisoners. And so you wake up. And then a couple hours later, they will bring some food around. That will be the plate of rice, the bowl of water with some vegetables. And they will, you have that in your room and then later, you can, uh, they will come around again. They will uh, allow you to take your bucket, which is your bathroom, out, and you empty that. And then you'll be at a water trough for about 30 minutes where you can wash. And that would be like five days a week. And this is, this is a normal good day. And after that 30 minutes, you're put back into your cell. And then about, say, 6 o'clock in the evening, oh, I forgot, at noon, they hit the tire thing again. This is a signal to take a nap. And about an hour and a half later, after nap time, they again beat on the rim. This is the rhythm of the camp. And about 6 o'clock in the afternoon, they bring the food around. You have two meals a day. And then, I don't know what time it would be, 9 o'clock at night, they beat on the uh, tire rim again, signaling, go to bed. Nobody interrogated you. Nobody tortured you. It was a good day. And during that day, we have all our duties as the POW, communicate with others, uh, do all the duties that it was. we're considered. We're just in a different military unit. We have a senior ranking officer. We have rules, regulations. We have, uh, we're still at work. 24 hours a day. So during that day when we're left alone, that's when all our activities are taking place.
0: So you're held a total of six and a half years in captivity. Did you ever
1: lose hope? No, no, not at all. Uh, always, everybody always said, confident, up, oh, you know what? United States will never abandon you. They will... They're in a bad situation. We know they can't do anything, but no. It will it will end. We will eventually. Get out. I I think that was fairly universal. It was never in doubt. It's just how do we get along till that time? So mentally
0: you felt pretty tough and resilient?
1: Yes, there wasn't uh any any problem. It was a bad situation, but no, it was it was okay that way. I, uh, I, I don't know if it was universal. I know a few people did have some mental problems and uh, never returned with the rest of us. Understandable. It was a very small group, but yeah, it, some did have problems.
0: How did you maintain your physical strength?
1: Well, I was in a... An example, I was in a, a room where if you put your hands out side to side, you would touch both walls, and if you take three steps, you would cover from one end to the other. But all you do is just walk back and forth. You have many, many hours and you walk back and forth, back and forth, and you can, you know, take a make a journey of a thousand miles. <laughs> <laughs> just go back and forth make a, few a lot steps of turns at a time no it's uh, that's how you do it
0: yeah were you ever allowed outside without supervision and was there ever an opportunity to plot an escape
1: oh yeah plotting and and all that went on a lot but it was considered a very difficult situation because Vietnam, North Vietnam, is one of the highest population densities in the world. And one example of how unlikely it would succeed is Bernard Talley was shot down before me. And he was shot down at night. And the people on the ground didn't even know that anybody had been shot down. And he was in a fairly remote area, and he came down in his parachute and was captured that night. There's just people everywhere. And there's very little. And we look so different. Americans are so tall compared to the Vietnamese. And we our appearance is just so different. And it's just, it was fairly... You know, unusual thoughts. Some even thought maybe we can go to uh, an embassy in Hanoi because some Western countries had embassies, and they thought maybe if we could get to an embassy, they would take us in and shelter us. But you now I I did have a cellmate who plotted an escape and actually did make an escape, and I remember saying. Oh, this is crazy. <laughs> Your ideas are crazy. <laughs> and I guess they were. Uh, he was captured a few hours later. But anyway, tried. And that's one of our code of conducts is if you can make a reasonable attempt, do it.
0: Listen for part two of my interview with Captain Buchanan as he describes communicating with fellow POWs and his eventual homecoming after six and a half years in captivity. He also discusses a Harvard study in which he served as a POW control subject, plus his thoughts on warfare today. Do you have a compelling story, or do you know someone I should interview? Drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail.com. Please tell a friend to listen to. That's how we grow our audience and continue podcasting. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation.